0: Hello and welcome to the Village Church Podcast. My name is John and we are glad to have you join us. We work to deliver our most recent preaching content to you as soon as possible, so let's get into God's Word together. Exodus chapter 3, if you have a Bible with you this morning. If you don't have a Bible, a little bit of a shift back there on the table. The Bibles that you can take are not blue. There's one blue one, there's one children's one that's multicolored, but the new Bibles that you're welcome to take, they have a black cover on them now. Uh, Please take one if you need one. Give it to someone if you need. Uh, It's our privilege to be able to supply God's word. You owe us nothing for it. Please just take it. If you have a Bible, Exodus chapter 3, whether it is a physical copy, an electronic copy, or it's chiseled on stone, which I would like to see as soon as this service is over. um, Exodus chapter 3. The book of Exodus reminds us, God's people throughout all generations, that the Lord, the God of heaven, the God of earth, is a God who delivers, redeems, and dwells with his people. Pastor, we know you tell us that every week, and I intend to tell you that every week as we journey through Exodus. It is the point of the writing of the book of Exodus, Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, at the, the power given him by the Holy Spirit, wrote this down so that every generation of God's people would remember that God delivers, redeems, and dwells with his people. Every generation. Moses was writing specifically to those, those who had come through the Exodus. Our original audience is important. Moses was writing this to the generations that were in Egypt and came out. To those who were about to enter the promised land, the book of Deuteronomy is 30 some odd chapters, 36 maybe, 37, it's in that neighborhood. The book of Deuteronomy is one long speech of Moses recounting all that God had done for the nation of Israel. And then the Torah in the Jewish faith, the Pentateuch, which means the five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, handed down through generations from the time that Moses wrote it until now for us in 2022 and any other Christian on the face of planet Earth that reads it, handed down that God's people would remember that he is a God who delivers, redeems, and dwells with his people. We are working our way through This encounter in chapter three with Moses before a burning bush. Remember that the bush burns, but is not consumed. And God has spoken to Moses out of the midst of the bush. To this point, Moses, you'll, if you've been following, you've been with us, Moses has not said a lot. His words have been interesting. He's asked more than he's said but he has not said a lot. Most of chapter 3 is God speaking to Moses and Moses recounting what God said to him and what has God said. God has told Moses that he had come to deliver Israel. I've heard the groanings of my people. I see their affliction. I know their suffering. I remember my covenant with them and I have come down to deliver them is God's opening volley to Moses out of the burning bush. Moses is going to lead God's people in that exodus. So God has come to deliver. Let's make sure we're paying very careful attention. God has come to deliver, and Moses is going to be used by God to lead the people out of of Egypt, out of their bondage. God says he will be with him. I'll be with you, but I will be with you. Moses is afraid in one of his interactions where he actually dares to get comfortable enough we just read it so matter-of-factly. He sees the bush and it's burning. He turns aside to see it, and God calls to him from the bush. God says, take off your sandals, place your sandals, holy ground. It says that Moses hid his face, but as God talks on, all of a sudden, Moses comes to a point where he's willing to say, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Isn't that just like us to get comfortable with the presence of Almighty God, that we would talk back to him? It's a question. Who am I that I should go? One of his questions. God says, I will be with you. I know you're afraid, Moses, but I will be with you. God reassures him. Moses asks for his name. God gives him his name. God has told him, I've come to deliver my people. He's given Moses instructions. Go to the leaders of my people, the elders of my people, and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, has appeared to me. Now I am to say to you, he gives him a message, he has come to deliver us out of Egypt. He's going to take us to the land he promised to us long ago. Two important words in that. Moses is supposed to say to them, God has appeared to me and God told me. God said to me. God promises to bring them up out of the land of Egypt. We talked about how it's not just deliverance from their slavery. Back in chapter 2, they cried, God, that you would deliver us and save us from our slavery, rescue us from slavery. God is not only going to rescue them from slavery, he's going to lead them out of the oppressive land of Egypt that they have been in, to a land flowing with milk and honey, prepared for them, ready for them. Homes you did not build, filled with things you did not fill, drinking from cisterns you did not dig, and eating from vineyards you did not plant. I have prepared for you a beautiful place. And now God is going to begin revealing How this will come about. Understand, we've been in Exodus chapter 3 for I don't know how many weeks, so if you're curious how long we're going to be in Exodus, this is probably a fair litmus of how long it's going to take to get through this book. In Exodus chapter 3, God is speaking. We come to verse 18. After God has begun giving Moses instruction, he says, Exodus chapter 3, verse 8, 18. And they will listen to your voice. After that, he will let you go, and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor, and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians." pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come to you today as we open your word. Father, for a moment to be instructed by you, I pray, Father, that you would speak to us, that you would teach us according to the truth of your word, by the power of your spirit, that we would learn from generations long past that you are a God who delivers, redeems, and dwells with us, your people. Father, I pray today through the preaching of your word that you would humble sinners to repentance. I pray, Father, that holiness would be promoted among your people, and I pray that Christ the Savior would be exalted. It's in his name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> I entitled the sermon, I had to do a two-part from two verses, but I know, so I will. Dealing today in Exodus three eighteen through 22 with two words, we're going to define them as we go. God's omniscience and God's omnipotence. Look at verse 18. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord the God of our fathers met with us, now please let us go, dot, dot, dot. We'll get to the rest in a little bit. God is omniscient. You may have not grown up in church, and you may not know what that word means. It's an ancient word, it's old, Omniscience has Latin roots. The easy definition for omniscience, as far as God is concerned, is He knows all things. God knows all things. He is not waiting to see what will happen. He knows what is going to happen. God is omniscient. He has all knowledge. He knows all things, all things. Omniscience has Latin roots. The word "omni" means "all. There's really no other way to describe the word "all." Omni means all. The word, the, the, the word omniscient is broken into two. Omni, the second half, sire, S-C-I-R-E, Latin root sire, means knowledge. merriam because I'm good enough to not use a physical copy of the dictionary when I need to. merriam says that sire, S-C-I-R-E, has a number of other knowledge-related descendants in English, including conscience, con-science, science, Science and pre-science, meaning for knowledge. That's a quote from Merriam-Webster. God is omniscient. God's omniscience, omni-science, all knowledge. God has all knowledge. Psalm 139, verse 4 says that God knows every word before we speak it. If you need a reason to not talk anymore, there it is. Oh, boy. Note, before you speak it, because God says, the Lord Jesus, that it is out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. God knows every word before we speak it. Proverbs 15, 11, the hearts of the children of man are open to God. The hearts of the children of man, mankind, whomever, wherever, whenever, heart open to God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, a verse that I have shared often in our gatherings, all are naked and exposed to God could be no more uncomfortable verse for us to talk about as Christians, as people, right? Why? In Eden, Adam and Eve were both naked and were not ashamed, and then they sinned and broke humanity, and now none of us would dare think to be naked with other people. That's shameful. And now we come to this verse, let's just think about the imagery All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him, God in heaven, to whom we must give an account. 1 John chapter 3, verse 20, literally says, God knows everything. God knows everything. God is omniscient. You may be thinking, but isn't that just stuff that like has happened or stuff I have thought? Like that's like, that's like... Present tense has happened. I have thought that. I, I have done that, and God knows all that. God doesn't know future thought. Certainly, God doesn't know future events. Like that's that's open for us to, to navigate as we walk through. God doesn't know like what I'm going to think or what I'm going to do. This is a false doctrine to think that God does not know. What you are going to do, what you are going to think, what you are going to say, to think that God does does not know that is a false doctrine. It's called open theism. You'd probably never define it that way. Open theism, theism meaning God, open, God is open. It is a false teaching that says that God is open to possibilities. He's created at random. And here is his creation and God is so omnipotent and so omniscient in his character that he is waiting for man to make decisions and he is responding to their decisions. This is not the God of the Bible. This is simply not the God that we see from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Account after account exists of God because He is all-knowing, telling of in precise detail what man will say, what man will do, and what will come to be. Because he is the author of all things. A friend of mine pointed out that he has a daughter who loves to write, and we were having this discussion about this topic. And he said, I've always considered God's omniscience in this way. My daughter loves to write, and when she starts writing, She has the end in mind from the beginning. When she starts writing, she knows where she's taking the story. And she knows everything that's going to unfold with all the characters in the story because she's the author. She's the creator of that story. That's a good analogy. There are over 2,000 instances in God's word of him predicting precisely what someone will say or do, and the outcome. If you want to take up a fight against the all knowing nature of God, you will be in for a challenge. It's happening right here in, in Exodus. Pastor, why do, you gotta, why do you gotta derail on this stuff? Because it's happening right here. Let's remember how, how Israel came to be in Egypt. Genesis 15, what happened? You're going to have offspring, Abraham. They're going to be more numerous than the sand and the sea, than the stars in the sky. And know for certain, your offspring will be afflicted 400 years. What else did he say? And they will come out with great possession. Did you see what happened down in verse 21 and 22? When they come out, each one to their neighbor. Give us your silver, your gold, and your clothing. And they will come back here in the fourth generation. This is not God saying... If they choose the way I want them to choose, they'll do what I want them to do. This is God saying, I know what they will do. Consider right here in Exodus chapter 3. Moses. Go to the elders, he says back in verse 16, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me. I have observed all that they have done, done to you in Egypt. I promise that I will bring you up out of the land of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 18, and they will listen to you. God's not hoping that the elders of Israel will choose to listen to Moses. God is telling Moses They will. Look what goes on to be said right here in front of us, right in the text. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a 3 days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go. God is speaking what is going to happen, even before they enter the promised land. Would you turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 31? I would love to preach all of the Pentateuch. I can't imagine it would probably take me two or three lifetimes to actually do it, so we'll just bite off bits and pieces as we go. Scripture interprets Scripture. It's the best thing to use. God is omniscient. He knows all things. And even before Israel is in the promised land that he's going to take them to, not a question of if they'll choose properly, I will do this. Look what he says. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 16. Warning, this is terrible content. Terrible because of what God says he knows the people of Israel will do. Verse 16. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Meaning, you're going to die, Moses. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. And they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Verse 17. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done because they have turned to other gods. Verse 19. Now therefore, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. Verse 20. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenants. Verse 21. And when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness For it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. For I know what they are inclined to do even today before I have brought them into the land that I swore to give them. Turn with me over to Isaiah chapter 46. God knowing the actions already, the future actions of Israel. Knowing what they will do when they enter the promised land. Isaiah chapter 46. Well, that's just Israel. That's not like us now. That's not all people. This is God and he's unchanging. So you have to grapple with that. I am the Lord. I do not change. His nature does not change. His character does not change. If he knew everything then, he knows everything now and he's not changing. No shadow or variation due to change, James tells us. Isaiah, the 46th chapter. If you want to read some great Bible, start in Isaiah Start in Isaiah 1, but start in Isaiah about 40. And read these words of God through the end of the book of Isaiah. Look at verse 8, chapter 46 of Isaiah, verse 8. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. Pay attention. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. Ephesians chapter one, verse 11 tells us that God works all things according to the counsel of his own will. So for us to ever Impose upon God the thought that God is somehow a God in heaven, waiting to see what we will do and then responding to it, is to take away from the all knowing, omniscient nature of God who does all things according to his own purpose and by his own will. He's not waiting, he's not thinking, To whom has the Lord sought counsel? The writers of the Bible would say, Who has given him counsel? No one. God is, look what he says, verse 10. He has declared the end from the beginning. Every person in the room is saying, what about my will to choose stuff then? Aren't I just a robot? Am I just, I'm just, what's the point of this life then? If God hasn't given me some kind of choice, like what did I? Listen, if you want me to reconcile for you how God gives you the ability to choose what will accord with His will, I can't reconcile that tension. But you're not going to do something that God does not want you to do, and God knows what you're going to do. You're not going to outwill the Lord, the God of heaven you understand the tension that we feel in the room right now? Every single person in this room feels that tension right now. God knows all things and you are not going to usurp his power. You are not going to do that. But God is such a God that he does not make, we're going to watch it right here in just a second in Exodus chapter 3. God has given you the ability to choose What accords with his will? Oh, pastor, I'm not sure about that. Hang with me and let's work through Exodus chapter 3. He says to Moses, they will listen to your voice. They will listen to your voice. I'm actually not dwelling with the elders of Israel listening to Moses' voice because at the start of chapter 4, when Moses has got a little bit more guts to speak to God in the midst of the fire, he's going to say to them, they won't listen to me. So we'll deal with that when we get to chapter 4. This is the note God gave Moses the message and tells Moses that the recipients will listen. Moses, I've, they will listen to you. Just go give them the message that I've given you to give to them. Then what? They'll listen. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him again, God has told Moses what to say, Moses and the elders of Israel. He's supposed to say this message to the elders, and then they are to go and say this message to Pharaoh. Moses is not making this up. God is giving it to him. What are they supposed to say? The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. This is a pretty confrontational statement, to be honest with you. This is Moses and the elders of Israel, when they give this message to Pharaoh, saying, Pharaoh, God is the ruler of us, not you. You're not in charge of us, Pharaoh. Slavery and all of this for all this length of time, but the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. We're going to come back also to this message when Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh in chapter 5, which reveals more of Pharaoh's heart. Note, they are to speak God's message. We talked about this last week. God's message on God's authority. Why? Look what they say. Because he has met with us. Every English Bible in this room, whether it's KJV, ESV, NASB, NIV, New Living Translation, or whatever other English version you have in your hands, every single one of them has the words, has met with us. This is confrontational because this is a God, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews. Not one of many gods, do you understand? In ancient Egypt, it is estimated through archaeological research and data and things that they can learn about that. There were, like, 2,000 or more gods in Egypt at this time. Thousands of gods. that's called a pantheon, for those that are wondering. their collection of gods. They're, mono, they're, they're polytheistic. they are believing in many gods. This is saying, no, 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 no. Pharaoh, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews. This is specific and confrontational to them. It's polite, as we're going to see. This is also saying, not you, Pharaoh. Pharaoh in Egypt, as you research ancient civilizations, Pharaoh in Egypt is a god on earth. He is a god between people and the gods. And so for them to come and say, no, 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 the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us, this is a bold statement that God has told them to go into Pharaoh and say. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, it's called the Shema. Every good, every good Orthodox Jewish believer in their religion. And maybe even, maybe even Messianic Jews, those who have understood that Christ is the Savior that they've been waiting for, they begin their prayers with this statement. Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one God, not many gods. Every ancient civilization that you read about, the children of Israel encountering from the time they're in Egypt, even before they're in Egypt, the gods of Molech and all of those abominations, the idols that are, that, what does Rachel steal the idols from her father's house and Laban chases after Jacob and Rachel and he comes into the tent and she's like, oh, I'm in the way of woman and she's sitting on all of the idols because they believed in Many gods, they are to declare one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is absolutely 110% undeniable ground floor foundation for the Christian faith. There is one God. Like, there is... One God and no other. And I'm going to talk about what that means in just a little bit. But we're going to work through the rest of this. This is foundational for us. It's foundational for them. One God, not many and not man. Look at the request. Go to Pharaoh. God has met with us. And now please. Isn't that interesting? And now please. Christian you don't have any footing to be rude with people in your life. God calls us to conduct ourselves in a way so that our words and our actions reflect his holiness. Now, I will be the first to raise my hand and say, guilty of the rude factor. I can be rude. I've been rude to some of you. I'm very sorry. We are not to be rude. If your demeanor is rude, there's some kind of fundamental problem in your heart between you and God. I'm not going to challenge that you're not saved in that, but I'm going to say Christians aren't to be rude people. And it's interesting to me that as Moses goes in there with God's authority and God's word because God said so, it's not, hey, kick the door down and you tell Pharaoh what's up. Moses goes into the courts. He's instructed here by God. He goes into the court of Pharaoh with the message, and now please let us go a 3 days journey. This is likely if you want to write down a fun note. This is probably the first time off request for religious observance in the history of mankind. You've all done it. I've done it. I need time off for what? I'm a Christian. Maybe you just say I got a, I got a thing going on. There's your challenge. Next time you need time off for a thing going on with a bunch of people at church, why don't you say I need time off because I'm a Christian and my relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ compels me to ask for this time off if it pleases you. Could I have this time off, please? Paul writing to the Corinthians, whatever you do, whether word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord. When was the last time you, in the name of the Lord, requested time off at work? Instead of, listen here. Listen here. I know that struggle. I've been in that position. No, I'm not going to be here. I'm not going to be here. You're going to give me the time off so I can go to church and be a Christian. Our words and our deeds should reflect the holiness of God and demanding rude behavior does not do this. Say to the king, now please, let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Note, the people of God must worship God. The people of God must worship God. Turn the page over to Exodus chapter 5, verse 3. Look what happens when they go. This is We're going to get there. I can't wait. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, they went into his courts and said to Pharaoh, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Verse 3. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with sword fascinating words from the people, Moses and the elders who are supposed to go with him and Aaron to Pharaoh, lest he fall on us, let us go and worship God, sacrifice being their form of worship, let us go that we may sacrifice to our God, lest he fall on us with pestilence, that is disease, that is plague of sicknesses. When you see the word pestilence in the Bible, pestilence is talking about COVID-19. Pestilence. Now you have a qualifier as people talk about disease and sickness in the world. Pestilence. There's no law yet. The Ten Commandments are still coming. We haven't got there yet. I'm the Lord your God, you worship me and me only. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Reverence my name, we're not even there yet. But something of the Hebrew people in going to Pharaoh and requesting time recognizes the people of God are to worship God. And to not worship God Is to disobey God. And to disobey God should expect a judgment. Please let us go. Please let us go that we may worship God. Pastor, why is God having them lie to Pharaoh? We see what's being said here and we hear what you're saying, but they're lying to Pharaoh. They're not just going three days into the wilderness. They're hightailing it home to another land. Why is God allowing them to lie to Pharaoh? Nowhere in all of scripture does anyone ever say to Pharaoh, Moses or any other, let us go and we'll return. They're not returning and they have not lied because what did God say to Moses? Moses. And this will be a sign. Look what he says back in verse 12, if we haven't forgot about it over the last few weeks. And this will be a sign that I am with you. When you have brought them out, you shall serve God on this mountain. You're going to worship me. You're going to do that. You're going to go a three days journey into the wilderness and you're going to worship me, but you're never going back to Egypt. God has not lied ever, nor has God here instructed Moses to lie. But in fact, he has not given Pharaoh the whole truth. Interesting point as I was reading commentaries. We're not quite into it yet. We're building up to it still. I'm going to point it out here in a little bit. God and Pharaoh are in a war. Pharaoh is at war with God. And everything that happens in the the stratagem, if you will, the strategy between Everything that God does is calculated off of, I know Pharaoh, I know what he's thinking, I know what he's gonna do, I know how he's gonna do it, and I know what it's gonna take. And everything he does in dealing with Pharaoh is how a brilliant military commander deals in war. Oh, well, I've not lied to you, I just haven't told you the whole truth. We are going three days in the wilderness and we're never coming back. Remember this: the world hates God. The world hates God and the world hates his word. You don't need to be put on your heels by some undisciplined, unskilled, unbeliever in the Lord Jesus Christ who wants to be skeptical about God lying because they say, look, he lies. Don't be put back on that. Stand your ground in truth and in love, but don't you be put back on that. God does not lie, nor as he ever, nor ever will he, and he does not hear. He simply does not reveal the whole plan to Pharaoh. Why? Well, because Pharaoh's heart is hard. Verse 19. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go dot, dot, dot. How many of us at this point in time are like, oh my goodness, God, like (sighs) be a lot easier if you just, with the strong hand and the striking now, Instead of me going and doing this thing that you're telling me is pointless. And God to us, right? Let's think through God's position and, our, and God to us. You're supposed to obey me. Do what I said. Parents in the room get that one. Every parent in the room gets it. Just do what I said. Do what I said. Moses, go and do what I said. I know that Pharaoh will not let you go. Pharaoh's heart is hard. Look what he says unless compelled by a mighty hand. Pharaoh's heart is hard. We're going to read about that again later in chapter 4. God knows that Pharaoh is not going to do what God has said Pharaoh will do. Look it, continue down. This is deep theological stuff happening here at the burning bush that all too often we just go, Oh look, Moses in the burning bush and God told him to go to Pharaoh to let the people go because God loves his people. We're missing so much of the vastness of God in this moment. I know he will not let you go. And I know what it will take in order for him to make the decision to let you go. And when I have exerted my power, look what he says, I will stretch out my hand and strike. I know that once I have exerted my power over him, he'll make the right decision then. Pharaoh's heart is hard. It will require a strong hand for him to make the decision that accords with God's will. And God can do it because he is omnipotent. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. Stretch out. This is God alluding directly to the plagues The disaster, the calamity, the death of the firstborn. This is God saying, this isn't wonderful things. This isn't, behold, wonderful things that God has done. This is God saying, I will bring Pharaoh and Egypt to their knees that Pharaoh will make the decision that I want made. He will let you go. He says, after that, he will let you go. God's omnipotence. Again, Latin, omni, all, potens, P-O-T-E-N-S, potens, means potent, you're right to hear that, potent, omnipotent, potent, potentate in old medieval things if you want to study. Anyway, Merriam-Webster says, and I quote, having or wielding force, authority, powerful. They go on to say, Its original applications in English, this is the word omnipotence, the original applications of the word omnipotence in English, pay attention to this, Merriam-Webster, the dictionary, saying these words referred specifically to the power held by an almighty God. The very word omnipotence in the English language traces its earliest roots to God. This is how they described Almighty, The all-powerful nature attribute of God is clearly seen and much more readily accepted than the all-knowing attribute of God. But God is both all-knowing and all-powerful. It was really fun. Uh, Kids Club Kids. Kids for Truth Club Kids, show me your hands. Okay, there's a few. Put them up higher. Stand up and show me your hands. Kids for Truth Club Kids, stand up and show me your hands. Okay, okay. Who remembers the signs for these? You guys remember the signs? God is all-knowing. And God is all, you know, remember, we got to do better work, kids club teachers, with kids in their signs. He's all knowing, he's all powerful, and he's all present, working through these attributes of God. Interesting working with the kids. Did you know God's power is never going to diminish? He's not looking to plug in and recharge like we do. If I could just disconnect and plug in and recharge... Just got to fill the tank up. Just need to reset the battery. Just need some time. I need a minute. God's not doing that. God is all powerful. God has all power. God is not running out of fuel. His battery's not in the red line that drives you nuts until you plug the phone and it turns green again. It's not even in the yellows telling you that it's saving power. I'm in the yellow mode right now. I'm saving power. God's not even doing that. God has all power all of the time. It's never diminishing. It's never fading. And it's never increasing because he has all of it. God can't gain more power. He is all powerful. Pastor, you're really dwelling on these things. Do you know why? Quick lesson. Because the average American has a fifth grade Sunday school theological teaching. And I want you to have a higher theological understanding of our God. I don't want you to be fifth graders in the Bible. I want you to be doctorates. I want you holding PhDs in the Bible, do you understand? That's why we belabor these things. All-powerful nature, attribute of God, revealed in Genesis chapter one, verses one and three, and throughout the rest of Genesis chapter one, but those two verses say this. God created the heavens and the earth None of you have ever created anything. Wait, hey, 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 I'm a pretty good cook, praise God. I've got some patents, I have some inventions, good for you. My dad used to tell a joke, I've probably told it here before, but every time I talk about this, I think of it and it makes me laugh, so I'm going to tell you and you can pretend to laugh with me. Scientists approached God telling him, we figured out how you did it, we know how you made man, figured it out, and we can do it. You have, God says, we have and we can do it. And God says this will be good, show me. And the scientists step forward and reach down to take dirt to form man and God says, get your own dirt. In the beginning, God created all things out of nothing. The Latin term, the old term we would say ex nihilo. Out of nothing, God created, God spoke. That's why Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-3 are linked right here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God said, let there be, and there was. No one else has that power, ever has, ever will. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 13 says, who can straighten what God has bent? When God bends something, you don't straighten it. When God straightens something, you don't bend it. Isaiah chapter 43 verse 13 says that God works, and who can turn it back? What God does, no one undoes. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, one of the greatest verses in all of Scripture, says that God, talking specifically about Jesus Christ, who is God, upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's how we all came here today. That's how we'll all go home, Lord willing. That's how the sun came up and the rains will fall and the crops will grow, and babies will grow, and people will die and go on to heaven or hell, because God upholds everything by the word. It's not even like he's sitting on his throne. Like, God I just got to keep cranking this thing. people are like, God, just he's got all these things in the air, and he's just keeping them all in the air. No, No. Genesis chapter one verse 31. And God rested from all his work, because he is the author, because he has declared the end from the beginning. As you read, especially the Old Testament, as you read your Bible, and I hope you're reading the whole Bible all of the time, over and over every day, make note of any references where God talks about his outstretched hand, his arm. You are staring at God's omnipotence when he says that. Read it in the verses this morning. Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah, several hundred years after the exodus. Ah, Lord God, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power. Nothing is too difficult for you. God will stretch out his hand and strike Egypt. And after I do that, he will Let you go. There's God's omniscience again, declaring the end from the beginning. Go and say, it's going to take a lot for Pharaoh to make the decision that I want made that fits with my plan, but he's going to make it after I stretch out my hand on him. After that, he will let you go, and you will not go empty. This is God providing great possessions as he promised to Abraham. Your people will come back here with great possessions, Abraham. You're going to die in peace. Don't worry about it. Your people are going to be afflicted. Don't worry about it they're going to come back here. I'm going to give them great possessions. I want you to note again here the war-like vocabulary at the end of verse 22. You shall plunder the Egyptians. The Israelites don't even know they're an army. They don't even they're not even fighting. Just they're going to do this. Do you have any gold or silver we're leaving? I could use it, thanks. That's what they're going to do. Just, what kind of clothes you have for my kids? We're out. That's what they're going to do. To the Egyptians, to their neighbors. They're going to go to people they've lived with for how long? How long have they been enslaved in Egypt? How long? We don't think about this. We just think about Israel wanting to leave. Remember, they wanted to leave their slavery, not Egypt. Oh, that we were in Egypt with the fish. You'll ask, and they'll give you silver and gold And jewelry for clothing, you all, every one of you that's going to be in this for the long haul, when we get through later to Exodus in 34, 5, 6, and on. God is literally preparing them with the provisions they will need for making the tabernacle. And they don't even know what that is yet. They have no idea what that is. And then all of a sudden you get there and they're like, we need your silver, we need your gold, we we need your fine stuff. Could you bring us your your material? We need the scarlet and the purple and the blue and the fine. These people have been enslaved for hundreds of years. They don't have any of this stuff. And here's God right here saying, watch me, watch me. I'm a God that dwells with my people. Watch me provide what you need to do what I'm going to tell you to do. Pastor, that's all fine and dandy. What can we take from it? These few verses, specifically 19 and 20, set the stage for the absolutely futile war that an impudent king, Pharaoh, is going to wage against the God of all flesh. A war that we'll watch unfold as we continue through the next 10 chapters until the foe is vanquished, as all of God's foes will be. But what do we glean from today's text for life right now? the Lord, the God of the Hebrews. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Not many of you who are claiming faith in the Lord Jesus Christ right now, saved, eternally hopeful because of Jesus, not many of you came in here sitting down thinking, the Lord, the God of Israel, the Lord is one. But there we are. But there we are, you and I. Not just descendants of Abraham, our children of Israel. And there we are. Romans talks about it. We believe in one God. Some notes on the screen for you. I see a lot of people taking notes. I'm glad you are. I expect a lot of questions after today's sermon. Trinitarian theology, the Trinity, the teaching that God is eternally existent as one God in three persons. We believe this. If you don't believe this, you've Come to the right place to learn about it where we hope you will believe it, but if you don't believe it, you're going to stand out like a sore thumb because the people of God believe that there is one God. Trinitarian theology is the teaching that God is eternally existent as one God in three persons. This teaching has been, is, and will forever remain under attack. The Trinity is being viciously attacked. Christians and churches don't believe that Jesus is God, let alone the world. They can't have it. We believe in one God who is eternally existent in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This is important. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all equal in essence and being. Pastor, what in the world do those words mean? God is equal, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, equal in essence. That is nature, that is character, that is attribute. All of them. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all equal. Equal in their attribute because they are one God. They're equal in essence and being. Being as in existence, as in eternal, as in self-sufficient, as in self-reliant. Like Pastor Jesus wasn't that. Oh, fully God, fully man. Whoa. The eternal son of God is equal in essence and being to God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. The eternal Son of God found an appearance as a man, humbled himself. Do you understand how important it is to read all of your Bible and connect all of the dots that all of the Bible is saying to you? Humbled himself, fully equal. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not multiple gods doing multiple God things. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one God, and all they do is in unity as God. All they do operates together together. As God. You should know this. It's one of the first attacks, and it's a true statement. You're going to come up against someone as you talk about the Trinity who's going to say to you, that's not in the Bible. True? It's the first attack, and it's absolutely true. The word Trinity is not in the Bible. However, one God in three distinct persons, fully equal in essence and being, is everywhere and absolutely undeniable throughout all of scripture. A few references for you, why not? Genesis 126, the Lord, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Us, let us, eternally existent, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, saying let us make man in our image. And they created man, let us. Matthew 3:16 and 17, one of my favorites, the baptism of Jesus, God speaks from heaven, the Holy Spirit is there as a dove and there's Jesus in the water. And I don't understand at that exact moment in time how people say the Trinity's not in the Bible. They're right there. You just don't want to believe what the Bible says. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, one of my favorites, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I thought it was the grace of God. It is. Hear, o Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Paul recognizing people will tell. I was just reading an article yesterday. The early church in like the first century did not believe in the Trinity. Baloney. Go to the Bible and show me how they don't believe or know about the Trinity. They can't articulate what we articulate because we, as Peter says, have it in full and they had smoky mirrors to try and understand through. But we have God's written in final revelation. The early church was highly Trinitarian. Paul writing to the Corinthian church, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. To the Ephesian church, there's one spirit. There's one Lord. There's one God and Father who is in all and through all and over all. To deny Trinitarian theology is to deny biblical truth. It is a denial of the Christian faith. It is unchristian. Denial. Note that. Denial, not lack of understanding. Because if, like me, you ever do any sort of studying on the Trinity, the closer you get, the farther away you are. I just can't grasp this. What is this? Not lack of understanding. Denial. Jesus isn't God, Muslims, Jews, a lot of religions. No, 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 we believe in this God. We believe in multiple gods. We believe in these gods. No, 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 no. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You may not fully grasp it. In fact, you don't because no one does, but you must believe it. God's people are to worship God as God. Are you a worshiper of God? To the Samaritan woman in John 4, Jesus said, true worshipers of the Father will worship in spirit and truth. He says, "A time is is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. God is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Pastor, can you draw that out? What does it mean, a a worshiper of God? What does that look like? Do you read his word? Do you sing his praise? Do you pray to him? Do you gather with his people? Do you tell people about the good works of God in your life? Do you tell people about God? Do You live a life of repentance toward God and of faith in Jesus Christ. This is what it looks like to be a worshiper of God. It's not pick and choose. Listen, you're not a worshiper of God just because you came in here and sat down today. Those are things that worshipers of God do. You're not made a worshiper of God because you do those things. You do those things because you are a worshiper of God. How do I become a worshiper of God? Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Repent of your sin and live a life according to his word. God is all knowing. God is all powerful. In working with the kids, the curriculum would ask the question, I would just be challenged by myself how do those truths affect your life today? You need to think about that. You need to make a note. God is omniscient. God is omnipotent. How should this affect my life? Let me give you a couple examples. If God is all-knowing, what are you worrying about? If God has declared the end from the beginning, why are you worrying? I'm worrying because I'm prone to anxiety. I get that. But at the end of the day, is that anxiety surrendered because you are surrendered to the God who has declared all things, the end from the beginning? God is all-knowing and I do not need to be. I do not know if I will make it home today. I do not know if I will make it to my next birthday. You do not know if you'll make it to next Sunday. Why does it matter? God knows all things and our faith in Jesus Christ guarantees us that because he knows all things, we are going to be with him. That's how God's omniscience should affect your life. God's omnipotence. Man, where are we going to meet in September? I just pull myself open for a second. God's omnipotent, he's all-powerful, he can make anything happen. I'm going to trust him. I don't know, so I'm going to trust knowing that he knows and he's going to make happen for his people what he wills. Do you understand? The all-powerful nature of God, these things should be affecting our lives. Through the prophet Jeremiah to lying false prophets who thought they could escape God's sight in prophesying wrongly about him. Jeremiah chapter 22, verses 23 and 24, God says, Am I a God at hand and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I can't see him? Do I not fill? I love this statement from God. It's one of my favorites. Do I not fill heaven and earth? And here we sit with sin in our heart thinking that we can get away with it from God. How dare we? The all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful nature of God should cause us to tremble at our thoughts, at our actions, at our words. We should tremble, and we don't, because our sin causes us to have a low view of God. He doesn't know all things. I don't really believe that. You don't believe in the God of the Bible. He's not all-powerful. He's not going to reach out his hand and strike me like he did the Egyptians. You don't believe in the God of the Bible. You don't know that God won't reach out his hand and strike you. Why would you think that God would not reach out his hand and strike you? Do you live thinking about the all-knowing, all-powerful nature of God? As much as they should make us tremble, now that I've got everybody all rattled and upset about everything, and these should give you great confidence. These are spiritual immune system boosters for the soul. The more that I cling to the fact that God is all knowing, the more that I cling to God watches my every secret thought. Just rest there, parents, spacing out because your kids are being loud and you want to go home and eat your lunch. God knows. He knows when you check out in the middle of a sermon. He knows when you just want to be done. Oh no, I would... I, and every mouth will be stopped at him. You won't say a word. As much as they cause us to tremble, they should give us such confidence. Do you live with confidence? When I was a young person, we would say you are a milk toast Christian. Milk toast is disgusting. People that live grasping and grasping for and grappling with the omniscience and omnipotence and omnipresence of God are strengthened in their faith. I'm not worried. I don't care. He is God and I am not. As we see Moses say to God next week, we're going to look. They won't listen. What sign? I? I don't know. I doubt we see God say to Moses, but I know, so I will, we should think of a king. A king who said, I died and am alive evermore. Behold, I hold the keys of death and Hades. I am the beginning and the end, the living one. Would you pray with me? God, we come before you today, a holy God. We are unworthy to address you. The reality is that our sin has stained us so much, Father, we should simply cry for your mercy and run in terror. But you, through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our faith in him, you have made it possible for us to address you and to plead, Father, have mercy on us. God, I pray that you would strengthen us as we consider your all-knowing, all-powerful nature. Oh, God, strengthen your people. Help us to rest in your knowledge. The knowledge that you know all things and we do not. The knowledge, God, that you have kept things from us. You've got secrets that you have not told us. Help us to be okay with that. Help us to trust your power. It is unrivaled, unmatched, unequaled. Father, help us to remember you are seeing all things You know all things. God help us. May that direct our lives. Every one of us, man, woman, child, may we remember, you are a God who is alive. And your eye is on your people, on humanity. Our hearts are bare before you. You are God. We reverence you as God. Be with us as we go in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for joining us this week. If you have any questions about anything you just heard or if we can pray for you, please contact us at infothevillagemi.com. At Until next time, stay in God's Word.